Welcome to Timeless Truth with Pastor Jim Thomas, a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. This week we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. To find studies of other books of the Bible from our archive, you can search our sermon library at thevillagechapel.com resources. We pray these studies will help you to think biblically in all categories of life so that we all might be formed more into the likeness of Christ. Now, here's Pastor Jim. Hey, so glad you've joined me today as we continue our study of Mark's Gospel. Chapter 3, looking at verses 7 through 19. It'll be really two different pericopes, two different stories, if you will, storylines. The first one, verses 7 through verse 12, is about the fast-paced growth of Jesus' ministry. Watch this. <clears throat> Jesus withdrew to the sea. He's, as far as we can tell, he's in and around Capernaum, but he's now withdrawing down to the shoreline is what's happening. And uh, he, with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee, that's that upper third of Israel, the whole northern third of Israel, uh, from that entire region, a, a great multitude. That's, uh, that's much bigger than a regular multitude. I don't know what great means. I just know it means huge, okay? So a vast, huge multitude of people from Galilee followed. And also from Judea, that's the southern third of Israel, and from Jerusalem, that's the capital of Israel or the capital, uh, religious capital of Israel in <clears throat> the th- uh, southern third of uh, Israel. Jerusalem was the holy city. This is the center of religion. So there's lots of people that have come up from there as well. And from uh, Idumea, which is uh, uh, where the Edomites uh, come from, uh, south and to the east a little, as well as beyond the Jordan. And that would be probably something uh, that would refer to anything on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which runs north and south. And so folks are coming from across the river. They're coming from the south. They're coming from the cap, you know, the religious capital of that area. They're coming from the northern third of Israel. And he goes on, as Mark does, and says, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. That's to the north and to the west of where uh, Jesus and his disciples are doing their ministry right now as they are down by the Sea of Galilee, by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so here are here are pagans, non-Jews from up in Tyre and Sidon. They're coming, they're flocking in droves as well. And there are just people coming from everywhere. And verse 9, Jesus told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude in order that they might not crowd him. For he had healed many, verse 10, with a result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they would fall down before him and crowd saying, you are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to reveal his identity. So again, you just have this, this sort of sense that there's a lot of growth, uh, but a lot of chaos as well. I mean, people just scrambling to just grab, just get a touch of the hem of his garment, if you will. And <clears throat> especially those who are sick, of course, and those who have loved ones who are sick that have perhaps carried their loved ones all the way there. That might be might be lame, they might be blind, they might have leprosy, any number of different maladies. And um, and then those who are demon possessed as well. Verse eleven talks about that. That if they had an unclean spirit, they would fall down crying out, "You are the Son of God." And again, I'll make the point that it's fascinating to me that the people who are demon possessed, they, when those uh, devils inside of them speak, they typically have uh, some 
amount of orthodox understanding of who Jesus is. You are the son of God, they say. And they recognize something about Jesus that the religious leaders of the day would not recognize about Jesus. And I, I don't mean could not, I mean would not. And uh, that's, a, that's a great challenge to us, isn't it? I mean, who do you say Jesus is, is one of those questions Mark continues to want to just sort of lay in front of us so that we get just implicitly, he's, he's, he's doing that over and over again. Who is Jesus? And, and if he's the son of God, like those demons actually inside of those people actually recognized him to be, if that's who he actually is, then how do you respond to Jesus? And uh, I love the miracles that are listed here as well. The, the, the crowds are coming for a lot of different reasons. Um, we have to acknowledge that as you read across the four gospel accounts, certainly the miracles have to be one of the biggest uh, drawing cards, if you will, one of the aspects of his ministry that's drawing people uh, by the thousands. The miracles that, I think I've said this before, they, they seem to have... Uh, five purposes. They're not just a bit of spiritual sensationalism. They're not just a sideshow, but they, uh, one, arouse curiosity about Jesus. Two, display his authority and his power. Three, reveal his compassion. He loved these people. Uh, so many of them that, you know, he, while he's walking the planet anyway, may not never ever have seen any of them, but when they come, he sees their need. He's moved with compassion. And compassion is love that must do something. It's, it's love in action, and Jesus takes action and heals these folks. So the miracles arouse curiosity. They display authority and power. They reveal compassion. They affirm his identity. Um, if he claims to be the Son of God, and if those demons are right, you are the Son of God, which I'm going to argue that they are right about that, even though they're wrong about so many other things. But they are wrong about, or they are right about recognizing who Jesus is. Wants me to, it makes me want to make sure I know who Jesus is too and remind myself over and over and over again, I belong to the Son of God, not just any old religious leader, not just uh, one among many, but the unique Son of God, God the Son, second member of the Holy Trinity. These miracles affirm his identity. If he is the Son of God, certainly he would be able to do these kinds of things. Um, they reveal his power and authority over diseases, over demons, over death itself. He's going to raise three different people from the dead. Uh, during the course of the four Gospels, we read about that. And then he himself, of course, will come out of the spiced tomb after three days. And uh, if you're the son of God, if you're unique, if you're God, the son, the second person of the Trinity, you would think he could do those things. And yes, indeed, he can. So power over disease, power over demons, power over um, all kinds of disasters, too. He calms the stormy sea. So we see that happen as well, and power over death itself. So fifthly, uh, the miracles not only arouse curiosity, displays authority and power, reveal his compassion, affirm his identity, but they inspire worship. You and I, all of us, every human person is created as a worshiping entity. We are all worshiping something, whether we want to or not, whether we know it or not. Something's at the center for you. Something's at the center of your life. There's something that you think 
that if you didn't have that thing in your life, your life wouldn't be worth living. Uh, and oftentimes our idols are, are good things, not, not, not little graven images that we make ourselves, that, you know, little statues that have eyes and cannot see, feet and cannot walk, uh, hands and cannot do anything with them, mouths and cannot speak. Uh, we often make uh, an idol out of our career, out of our family even, believe it or not. Like I say, some of the things can be good things. They just aren't meant to be the center of our life. When we make Jesus the center of our lives, um, it's interesting to see how much better of a husband I am or how much better of a pastor I am when Jesus is first and those things each take their proper role behind Jesus being first. And uh, so these miracles, they inspire worship. I'm now, if I worship Jesus, I'm worshiping the right thing. He's the right thing to be at the center of our lives. And these folks, they're just learning this. So many of them are just desperate to be able to see or be able to walk again, or, or for the first time in some cases. And their friends are desperate for their loved ones. And so they're coming and they're bringing perhaps their demon-possessed children or their demon-possessed friends that they can get to come there. And Jesus warns them not to reveal his identity because he doesn't want there to be this sense of, a, of it being a political movement yet. That's best guess I can give to it. Um, he wants to be able to make it around to a number of different cities and different parts of the country and the region, actually. He's going to go into Gentile territory, into the Decapolis, the 10 cities, the Greek cities, um, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and the southern side of the Sea of Galilee as well. And so Jesus is pacing his ministry, and his time had not yet come when he was going to lay down his life. But when it does come, he'll say um, that his time had come. So he's in charge. He's the one that's pacing his ministry. And right now, he's told his disciples, get a boat ready. We might need it. The people are, are coming and pressing in on, on us so hard. But meanwhile, he's giving of himself. He's using his power to heal people. And um, and that's what's stirring. He just sees the need and he ha- he's, he's compassionate. He must move and respond because of what's inside of him, his great love for these desperate people. Verse 13 is a little bit of a shift. He doesn't get in the boat that they had at the ready unless there's a break here of some kind that we don't know. Um, But he had just earnestly warned those who were demon-possessed not to reveal his identity. And verse 13, immediately it says, he goes up onto the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the 12, and then he runs the list here. And it's fascinating. There are parallel accounts in some of the other gospel records as well, but it always starts with Simon, which I find fascinating. And always the list always ends with Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So verse 14, Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. And uh, what a nickname for Peter to have. You know, this is a guy who's later on going to want to walk on water. And uh, Peter means stone or rock. 
the last thing you want to do if you're a stone or rock is be on top of the water because soon you're going to be down below at the bottom of the water. And, uh, you know, obviously Peter didn't know that was coming along for him, but it's just fascinating to me that that's his name and that Jesus, uh, when he fixes his eyes on Jesus, he actually can walk on water as he gets out of the boat and walks toward Jesus. It's when he takes his eyes off of Jesus that he begins to be that stone or rock that sinks, isn't it? Well, Jesus appoints these 12 and their names are Simon and James, um, and the son, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanajeras, which means sons of thunder. And I have some friends that had one of the earliest Christian uh, rock bands on the East Coast called Sons of Thunder. Um, I, I, they're just amazing people, and I'm still uh, good friends with a bunch of them. And they were a great band back in the day, man. But Sons of Thunder, they, they were like these two, James and John, they were sort of the, uh, uh, what would you call them? They're, they're like the bouncers for the disciples. They're the tough guys, okay? One time Jesus is going through Samaria, and the Samaritans, Samaritans didn't respect or respond to him the way that James and John thought they should. And uh, so James and John go to Jesus and they say, do you want us to call down fire and brimstone from heaven on these people because of the way they're treating you? And uh, and so Jesus has this sort of name for them that, uh, and I love the way Jesus does nicknames. You know, Simon, he calls him Peter. Jesus probably knowing that that whole walking on the water thing is coming, you know. And so he names him Rock or Stone. And then and then here you have Boanajeras, these guys that are sort of the bouncers of the disciples, the sons of thunder. Verse 18, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew uh, and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus uh, and Simon the Cananean. That's it. See, Simon was a very common name back then. So it's helpful that he draws uh, 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 a nickname for Simon Peter. Here's Simon the Cananean. And then lastly, Judas Iscariot. And then it's listed right here. Mark's gospel says it. Um, who also betrayed him. So we're told that from the get-go as we get the list here. And that's all I want to read for today. But I find this fascinating, the um, the accounts that we have of Jesus calling his disciples to himself. We'd previously read where Jesus called Simon and Andrew, uh, his brother, and James and John. And now we get the, the a little fuller list of the uh, 12 uh, disciples that will later become the apostles um, and that will uh, the Lord will use to preach the gospel uh, all around the Mediterranean throughout the Roman Empire and the gospel will spread like wildfire and there's no real explanation for that apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What good news that is even our last and greatest enemy death itself. Um, couldn't hold Jesus down. And for all of those who put their hope, their confidence, and their trust and their faith in Jesus, he promises them eternal life as well. And that one day he will do to our graves, to our tombs, and to the graves of all of those we love and have lost who've gone on ahead of us. He will do to our graves the same thing he did to his own tomb. He will kick the stone out of the way and we will rise again in newness of life, eternal life with Jesus. Well, for uh, just a moment or two, let me pick apart what happens here when he uh, calls these disciples, this account here anyway in verses 13 
especially in uh, 13 and following. So what we have here in verse 13 is this summons. I'll call it a, a holy summons, if you will, because it says here in verse 13, he went up the mountain and obviously anybody that follows him is willing to do the arduous work of climbing the mountain to follow him and to be near him. They want to be near him. They want to follow him. And he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. So it, it could have been at the base of the mountain as he's going up the mountain. He goes, you guys, follow me. Uh, and um, he, he may have pointed out some. He may have called some. We don't really know. It's just that we know he summoned them and they responded. And that would be the second thing, I think. Uh, there's a holy summons for disciples where he calls us. And, uh, and I, I believe he calls us by name. I love it that all the 12 names are listed here and elsewhere in the other gospels as well. Every name matters. Uh, and he knows your name. He knows my name as well. Um, and some of us may or may not be able to isolate uh, a moment where we thought we audibly heard uh, the voice of God calling to us. But uh, many of those who have followed Jesus become disciples of Jesus indeed remember a day or a time when uh, all of a sudden they were they found themselves following Jesus responding to him and that's kind of the second part of this this call of disciples it involves a holy summons and it secondly involves a response of faith um, he summoned them the ones that he himself wanted so he he chose and called them he summoned them okay and then they, came and followed him. And it's it's almost just that simple, isn't it? I, I mean, I mean, I, I realize there are theologians that can make it really complicated. Um, but it's 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 just about this simple. Um, when you if if you even think you hear him calling your name, please respond in faith, believing to him. Come to him. Turn to him. I could use all kinds of different metaphors. But if he's calling you, oh my goodness, who wouldn't want to follow him? Um, so holy summons, response of faith. Thirdly, I see here, um, it says here in, in verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him. And so this isn't uh, just a holy summons and a response of faith uh, to memorize the rules. Um, no, it's that we might be with him. There, I'm going to call this third thing uh, relational discipleship. So holy summons, response of faith, and relational discipleship. Disciples are apprentices. Uh, Dallas Willard used to talk about it like this. He would say, disciples are those who choose to, who would like to live their lives as Jesus would live their life if they were Jesus. So we're apprentices. We're, we're studying and we're following Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher, but also our savior and our king. He's so much more than just an example, but there isn't a finer example that ever lived. He's so much more than just a rabbi or teacher, but there isn't a better one that ever lived. He's also savior and king. He's Messiah. Uh, he's our deliverer. Oh, there's so much more I could say about him, but he wants to be in relationship with you and with me. And he wants us to be with him. So holy summons involved in discipleship. 
he, he, he's the initiator. We're the responder. Secondly, responsive faith. Thirdly, relational discipleship. It's not just to memorize stuff. It's not just to learn how to be right in an argument. No, it's about a relationship with Jesus. And fourthly, um, joining Christ on his mission in this world. Verses 14 and 15, he wanted to send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And so he wanted them to join him with his words and deeds, with his words and his works, the mission of God in this world, to unfold the kingdom of heaven, um, to continue to push back the darkness, to be light and salt in this world as we are ambassadors for Christ our King. So discipleship involves those four things, at least a holy summons, um, responsive faith, relational discipleship, and joining Christ on his mission in this world. Just a couple of quotes and I'll let you go. The church exists, so said the old Scottish preacher, William Barclay. The church exists for those outside of itself. The church must never be in any sense a little huddle of pious people shutting their doors against the world, lost in prayer and praise, connoisseurs of preaching and liturgy, busy mutually congratulating themselves on the excellence of their Christian experience. No, the Christian, uh, the church exists for those outside itself. We're to join Jesus in his mission in this world. And uh, I happen to have a copy of what's called the Africa Bible Commentary. It's one of my favorite commentaries. Um, it's written by pastors who live in the continent of Africa and from several different countries over there. And um, there are a couple of these kinds of commentaries. And for me, I love reading commentaries written by pastors who are actually living out a completely different kind of um, experience than I, than I have. Here I am in the West, uh, and, and, and there they are living in Africa, many of them impoverished. Uh, many of them don't have access to the kinds of things that I have access to, books, commentaries, and things like that. And their perspective is so amazing and so brilliant. Um, one is Joe uh, Capolio, and I'm not sure I'm saying his name right. And if, uh, if somebody knows who Joe is, or if, if Joe, by some odd chance, might be listening to me, forgive me if I didn't pronounce your name right, but it's from the Africa Bible Commentary. And Pastor Joe says, Jesus commands us to make disciples, not just converts. And I could have stopped right there because I thought that was gold right there. Uh, we've said it around the Village Chapel before so many times. Um, while every disciple is a believer, it doesn't seem to me that every believer is a disciple. There are a lot of people that believe in the existence of God but aren't following Jesus. So academic uh, acknowledgement of the existence of God um, is not the same thing as following Jesus. Uh, that's a completely different thing. So Jesus commands us to make disciples, not just converts, Pastor Joe Capolio says. And then it goes on, discipleship demands a total surrender of one's identity, security, and being to the Lordship of Christ. Wow. Such surrender demands more than outward conformity to a religion. It must affect one's 
inner being. That's worth repeating. I'm going to have it in the show notes. So if you have access to those uh, in the platform you happen to be watching or listening, uh, access it there. If you don't, go to thevillagechapel.com and you'll be able to find the show notes for my podcast. But uh, this is Pastor Joe Capolio, Africa Bible Commentary. Jesus commands us to make disciples, not just converts. Discipleship demands a total surrender of one's identity, security, and being to the Lordship of Christ. Such surrender demands more than outward conformity to a religion. It must affect one's inner being. And I think he is right. My final quote is from one of my favorite all-time theologians, uh, J.I. Packer, in his book, Rediscovering Holiness. He says, our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God in the power of God for the glory of God. And that's what Jesus called those 12 disciples to do. He will empower them. We read about that uh, in the first chapter of the book of Acts as Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven. He says, go and wait uh, for for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll go out into the world and you'll be my witnesses. And we, by extension, have that Holy Spirit living within us as well to be his witnesses to testify of the of the gospel of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. Thank you so much. Read ahead. There's so much more coming in Mark's gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this text, this passage. Thank you for your calling to each one of us. And Lord, I pray if somebody is listening and watching today and has a certain sense that you are calling them to become a believer, to become a disciple today, pray that they would respond in faith. Um, and I, I pray that they'd reach out to us at the Village Chapel in some way as well. Let us know. Uh, For those, Lord, who are um, disciples who have drifted, for those perhaps who have uh, um, strayed in some way, pray that you call them back to a faithful following of you and that you'd set them back on course again, following you, Jesus, joining you in the mission that you have for them. We're grateful for your kindness in our lives. We're so grateful, Lord, uh, for the joy Uh, that you've placed in our hearts, even during these dark days uh, of the world around us and all that's going wrong. Lord, that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for coming for us. You didn't have to. Thank you for the rescue and the redemption and the salvation that you put on offer to each and every one of us. We pray in your precious and holy name. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to today's study. Take a moment to leave a review and share this episode with friends and family. You can stay connected by signing up for our newsletter or follow us on social media. At The Village Chapel, we believe God's Word is unique in its source, timeless in its truth, broad in its reach, and transforming in its power. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit our website, thevillagechapel.com.